Greetings to all our friends and brethren around the world. Welcome to all our guests that are here in Charlotte. We had a cool front that came through the other day and reduced our temperature by about 20 degrees from a high of 84 down to 64, so we were very refreshed. I took a survey in our staff meeting the other day and found out how many of our employees were going to international fee sites, and one half of them were going there to other nations around the world, so we're very thankful for our ambassadors here. But we are God's family. We are a worldwide family. We have uh, Mr. and Mrs. King visiting from England here. He taped a telecast yesterday, and uh, we'll tape another one on Tuesday. Dr. Meredith and I will also tape a couple television programs, uh, one each, next uh, week. Uh, Mr. King has just returned from Nigeria and Ghana, uh, visiting brethren there, along with Mr. Reese Ellis. Uh, Mr. Ellis went on to visit Burundi and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, so we do have brethren in many parts of the world. We need to pray for our brethren there in Africa that they can live safely in peace and be able to have a foundation to preach the gospel there effectively. Last Sunday was the 10th anniversary of 9-11. There were memorial activities, and they reminded us that we are in the end times. We think of terrorism and conflict, oppression all over the world. We have continuing drought, flooding, earthquakes, hurricanes, and a global financial crisis. They remind us that we are nearing the end of man's time on earth. Every time, every day brings us closer to the kingdom of God. We have uh, limited time to fulfill the mission that God has given us and to prepare the world, the church, and ourselves for the kingdom of God. Two weeks ago, we saw in the sermon that the London riots and the United Kingdom anarchy, as Economist magazine called them, were characterized by mindlessness, a moral malaise, and a lack of internal restraint. In other words, the rioters lacked character. Our national character and the national character of many nations is eroding. It's deteriorating. It's dissolving into godlessness and carnality. Christ is going to judge the nations. He tells us in Isaiah 2 and verse 4, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. Micah 4, verse 3, repeats it in this way. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. Our nations were called to set an example to the world, as we saw last time in Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter. Israel failed in that mission to show the world that they would keep God's statutes, His laws, His commandments, and be the kind of nation that all the world would say, how can this be such a great nation that is so close to God and so near to Him? Is the world saying that about our nations today? Of course it is not. God has called us to replace that nation with the spiritual Israel of God. The spiritual nation that we are called to be radiates God's character his love, his faith, his nature. We saw last week in Dr. Meredith's inspiring sermon, Is God Real to You? 
that godly faith is a part, a major factor, and a major part of godly character. Two weeks ago, I gave the sermon on growing in godly character, and I'd like to continue with that theme in today's sermon. God is creating in each of us with our consent and with our desire, with our choice, His nature and His character. Each of us is unique. Each of us has a special identity and a special personality. So today, in the second sermon on the subject of character, the title of today's sermon is Character, Fulfill Your Calling. We need to know who we are, and we need to know our calling, accept that calling. Have we accepted our calling? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26, a scripture with which most of us are very familiar because we know who we are. We are not the great of the world. Was it uh, Cassius Clay that once said, I'm the greatest? I don't know if any of you have ever said that. I hope you don't. Um, We will be great only when we are in God's kingdom as glorified spirit beings. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So we realize who we are, what we are, those of us who have been humbled, those of us who have been conquered by God, we realize we aren't the greatest. But God wants us to become great. He wants us to fulfill the most magnificent process that has ever been designed in the universe. And that is God is creating in us His very nature, His very character. And we have been called to cooperate with that, to show to the world that those who think they are great are not great, because God has called His people to reflect His very love, His very nature. What are we called for, and what is the goal and purpose of our calling? We have a mission, as we know in Mark 16, or 15, 16, and of course Matthew 28, verses 19 and 28, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Let's turn to Galatians, the fourth chapter. We see another part of the calling God has given us. The church, as we heard in the opening prayer, that we are to be fed by God's ministers. Galatians, the fourth chapter, gives another perspective on our growing in godly character and to fulfill our calling. Galatians 4, and start with verse 19. Galatians 4, uh, verse 19. My little children, Paul writes, for whom I labor in birth again 
until Christ is formed in you. In other words, we are to have changes in our life. We think of our own past life and our own carnal nature, and I look back at my life and I say, oh, wow, you know, I have done such carnal things that just are incredible. And yet the greatest, one of the greatest miracles is that carnality can be changed into spirituality. And all of you are testimony of that. You are to be witnesses of that process, of that change. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. We're called to be conformed to Christ's godly character. We'll see more scriptures on that later. Philippians, the third chapter. We're called to train, of course, as kings and priests for God's coming kingdom. And the upcoming Feast of Tabernacles will emphasize that. And we'll see many different perspectives and get a vision of tomorrow's world. Philippians 3 and verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As the King James has it, high calling. I press for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We have a calling. Have you accepted that calling? Are you dedicated to that calling? Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if any time you think otherwise, God reveal even this to you. Sometimes we go astray in our thinking. And if we are close to God, God's Spirit will guide our thinking because we're meditating on God's Word. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Yes, God is creating a unified family. And we press for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So are you committed, are you dedicated to fulfill your calling? In our recent visit to Britain, my wife and I and uh, the Staffords visited a special castle in Wales. Uh, It's called the New Gwydir Castle. It was built by Meredith in 1500 A.D. Meredith was descended from Roderick, the third son of Owain Gwynedd. My wife was reading some early Celtic history last evening, and we found that the Celtic word gwydir meant tenacity of purpose. That certainly describes one of Dr. Meredith's characteristics, tenacity of purpose. The Apostle Paul said, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. A vital imperative of our calling is to reflect the tenacity of purpose, to achieve what God has set for us, to seek first his kingdom above all else. In the first sermon on character, we gave some of the characteristics. I want to repeat one of the questions I ask you. What are the qualities of godly character. I asked the questions, how would you describe your character now? Would you describe your character as godly? 
weak, carnal, unstable, tested and predictable, immature, or mature and growing. We briefly discussed examples of weak-willed characters like Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, and Reuben, who disqualified himself from a double blessing. Then we saw examples of strong character of Joseph, the son of Jacob, who did demonstrated strong character when he resisted the temptations of his master's wife. And when he said, there is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph had strong character. Is your character that strong to resist temptations that come along? Another person who had strong character, of course, was Saul. He had character in the wrong way. He was very zealous to the point that he was actually persecuting true Christians. But later on, when he was converted, that characteristic of zeal was used by God for good in preaching to the Gentile world. Let's turn to Philippians, the second chapter. Take a look. Oh, just back a page here. Take a look at another strong character. Philippians 2 and verse 21. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the evangelist Timothy, Timothy says, For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, talking about Timothy, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. So again, therefore I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Paul commends Timothy. He says, you know his proven character. Is your character proven? What reputation do you have within God's church, within your neighborhood, and within the community? Let's turn to 1 Timothy, the third chapter. One qualification for a minister is good reputation. But really, this holds for all of God's people because we're called to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. We sang that in one of the hymns the earlier part of the service this, this afternoon. First Timothy 3 and verse 7. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. I appreciate my wife is very sociable as we took our walk this morning. We noticed that one of our neighbors was moving away and... Uh, she uh, asked one of the young men at the curbing, are, are you re- related to Mrs. McKinley? He said, yes. He said, uh, I'd like to see her, say goodbye before she goes. And, well, she's still in the house. So my wife went in the house and uh, greeted her and talked for a while and passed on her greetings. She's moving out of our neighborhood. But I appreciate that my wife has a good reputation even in our neighborhood. I think I mentioned it before. She's uh, a watch captain of uh, in, in our block captain. So uh, she's serving in that way. But we need to have a good testimony among those who are outside. As Jesus said in Matthew 5:14, you are the light of the world. Just uh, yesterday, I was in uh, a doctor's office, just routine uh, podiatry uh, checkup. And I noticed the license on the wall. It was a North Carolina license for a podiatrist. 
and it was uh, headed by the Board of Examiners. And I wrote down one of the statements. We do certify that he, the doctor, hath, uh, using the King James Old Language, H-A-T-H, we do certify that he hath produced to us, listen to this, sufficient testimonials of his upright character and upon examination before us is found to possess a competent knowledge of the science of podiatry. So part of that license, according to the North Carolina Examiner's Board, was that he needed sufficient testimonials of his upright character in order to be a licensed doctor. Do you have upright character? Testimonials of his upright character. Do you have integrity? As uh, Mark Twain said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. You know, the definition of integrity is firm adherence to a code of especially moral or artistic values. We think of other individuals who had character. King David in Acts 13.22. Well, let's turn there. Acts 13, verse 22, to see another man of character. Acts 13, verse 22. Remember, King Saul disqualified himself. And God made David king. Acts 13, and verse 22. And when he, God had removed him, that is King Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. That's our calling as well. That's how we grow in character. We need to have that heart that follows the heart of God that will do all of God's will. We've been working on the November-December Living Church News for uh, 2011. Uh, Dr. Meredith's uh, editorial is titled, After God's Heart, After God's Own Heart. He says, Brethren, let us sincerely pray to our God that we and all of brethren in God's church may learn to seek God with all our hearts, walk with Him, love Him, and constantly praise and thank and worship Him like David did then truly we will become a people after God's own heart. Then God will bless us, deliver us, heal us, and in every way cause his face to shine upon us as never before. But we want to be people after God's own heart. What strength of character do you have? Let's review a couple of those Proverbs we rehearsed last time. Turn to Proverbs, the 16th chapter, Proverbs 16. Again, do you have this characteristic? If not, pray that God will develop it in you. Proverbs 16 and verse 32. And I know I've had problem with this particular characteristic. 16, verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. You've heard the, the statement and the principal axiom. Well, just count to ten. If you're starting to get angry with someone, count to ten. So you don't respond quickly. Or there's another one, of course, that says, and I don't have that reference here in the Proverbs, 
Go from the presence of a foolish person when you perceive in him not, you perceive not in him the lips of knowledge. In other words, if someone is foolish, talking foolishness, God says go from his presence. I could tell you a story about that, but I better not. But notice the end of verse 32, and he rules his spirit than he that takes a city, greater than all the generals and commanders, he who rules his spirit, than he that takes a city. That requires character. It requires self-discipline. And, of course, when it says in 2 Timothy 1.7 that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, sound-mindedness can also be translated discipline. That God has given us that spirit of discipline. Turn over to Proverbs 24 in verse 10. Again, part of our mission that Dr. Meredith has emphasized. Proverbs 24.10, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn toward death. And some of you fit in that category. You have been delivered from death. How? Because you've taken the warning. I remember way back in 1960 and 61 when I was reading 1975 in Prophecy and seeing Mr. Basil Wolverton's drawings of bodies being bulldozed into a pit. That wasn't so far out. When you take a look at what's happened in Kosovo and seen in uh, South and African nations and uh, Cambodia and other places, Rwanda, all over the world, atrocities, terrible atrocities. But I was motivated to want to change. I didn't want to end up being bulldozed into a pit someday. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? So we have a mission to perform. Verse 16. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. So God wants us to persevere. That's a part of godly character is perseverance. Some of you wanted me to repeat this particular quote I gave last time about character, and there are several uh, wisdom quotes, you might say. This was anonymous. Watch your thoughts, for they become words. Watch your words because they become actions. Watch your actions, for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they become character. Watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. And of course, another anonymous quote was, character is what you are in the dark. As you think, no one's watching me, therefore I can sin all my, all I want. But darkness is light to God, of course. We want our children, of course, to have a set of ethical values, as Colin Powell pointed out. If you can be trusted always to be honest, to do the right thing, you can then be counted on to be a fair person, always considerate of others, always doing unto others as you would have done unto yourself. I'll give you a couple more quotes on character. Albert Einstein Most people say that it is the intellect which makes a great scientist. They are wrong. 
It is character. President Theodore Roosevelt said this about character. Character in the long run is the decisive factor in the life of an individual and of nations alike. And one more, Ralph Waldo Emerson, American essayist, philosopher, and poet, quote, what lies behind us and what lies before us are small matters compared to what lies within us. Let's turn to Romans, the fifth chapter, Romans 5. Romans 5. We're very thankful for the character of our brethren around the world. We've seen growth and development in individuals, carnal people being changed to spiritual, weak people being made to strong, transforming into strong character. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. God wants us to stand, in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, or in the King James experience. And character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which, as it should read, has been given to us. Godly character requires God's Holy Spirit. And the love of God, verse 5 of Romans 5, has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's given to us. And I hope we always have that awareness, that alertness, that consciousness that God's Spirit is to flow out from us in rivers of living water. And that love, that unconditional love towards our families, towards our friend, towards our brethren, and towards our enemies, as Jesus said in Matthew 5. Love your enemies, he said. How do we know we have God's Spirit? And how do we know that Christ is in us. Well, let's put it the main question in 1 John 3. 1 John 3, a very encouraging scripture because we know that, as we already read, that Christ should be formed in us and Christ should be living his life in us. But how do we know whether Christ is living his life in us or not? 1 John 3, verse 22. And whatsoever ye ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So think about that. You ask God to help you to please him. And this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now, verse 24. Now, he who keeps his commandments and abides in him, And he in him, and it's capitalized here for the pronoun, the Christian who keeps God's commandments, abides in God and Christ, and God and Christ in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, how? By the Spirit which he has given us. So when you have God's Spirit, God and Christ will abide in you. Let's turn back to that powerful key of overcoming and growing in godly character, Philippians, the second chapter, 
And I emphasized that last time, but I don't know that we can overemphasize this tremendous key and promise of fulfilling our calling and growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, it's that awe of God. Dr. Meredith's sermon last week. Oh, do you really know the real God? Is God real to you? He asked. For it is God, and here's the promise, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And if you are weak-willed, you ask God for his will, to work in you, to strengthen your will, to do his will. We pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught in Matthew, the sixth chapter. This is an incredible promise, and I hope, brethren, that you claim this promise. You ask God to work in you to do both his will and to do for his good pleasure. And that way we can grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Christ. I referred last week, of course, to the character-building institutions of Ambassador College and Living University. Let me just repeat the founder's statement in the Living University catalog. At Living University, in all we do, we challenge each other to fulfill our motto, Recapture True Values. By demonstrating our core values of leadership, service, commitment, integrity, excellence, culture, and creativities, these values are embedded in God's way of life as detailed in the Bible, end of quote. So we want God to work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. But he's also given us creativity. We are unique. We have wonderful varieties of personalities talents and abilities in all of God's saints and individuals around the world. Jesus said in John 10.10, well, let's turn there. I could just quote it, but I think it's good for us to just read it because in times of stress we kind of forget, yes, there is a time to mourn and a time to laugh and a time to dance and a time to refrain from dancing. We understand that. And there are those two ways of life that Jesus explains here in John 10, verse 10. The way of Satan and the way of Christ. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's happening all over the world. I have come, Jesus said, that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. We have abundant life, and I... Just uh, really appreciate the experiences that I've had in Ambassador College where we want to recapture, all of us need to recapture the true values of every aspect of life. I remember one uh, student, a friend of mine uh, back in uh, Ambassador when I was a student years ago, his father was a contractor, built homes around the San Francisco area. And he said, my dad always tries to build with quality. He wants to to recapture those values that will be in tomorrow's world, that when he builds a house, he wants to build it, that it's God's way of building a house with good quality. Well, are we recapturing true values of art, literature, science, 
entertainment, business, culture, society, industry, religion, education, and life. That includes, of course, the true values of humor. Even President Ronald Reagan had a sense of humor. He he enjoyed eating jelly beans, which is a kind of a sweet candy. He stated, quote, You can tell a lot about a fellow's character by his way of eating jelly beans, end of quote. Well, that's humorous. But as we grow and mature, we develop our personality and character. We develop the great gift that God has given us, which is our minds. And you know Second Peter 3, verse 18, I won't turn there. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. I quoted this last time, but I'll quote it again. Martin Luther King, Jr. The function of education is to teach one to think intensively and to think critically. Intelligence plus character, that is the goal of true education. Our brethren and uh, Tomorrow's World subscribers all over the world are taking advantage of Living University Distance Learning. And I encourage you, those who are hearing now and will hear it in the future around the world, you can even audit a course. If you feel that you don't have the time to pursue a certificate or a degree, you can still audit a course, and you have the benefit of the lectures and study, but you don't have to take the tests. Of course, you don't get credit towards a certificate or a degree. But I still encourage many of you who don't have the time to to pursue a degree or a certificate to at least attempt to audit one of our Living University courses. It will help you, of course, to grow in godly character. Godly character requires overcoming. And that's a lesson, of course, of the days of unleavened bread. We have to overcome that heart. Let's turn back to Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Again, one of those memorization verses that tells us the truth about you, the truth about me, the truth about every human being. Jeremiah, the 17th chapter and verse 9. Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God does. Verse 10, I, the eternal, search the heart. I test the mind according, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. We need to understand, yes, we have to overcome that nature, the NIV uh, says the heart is beyond cure. The New King James Margin said the heart is, in the margin, incurably sick. So where do you, where does your character, your personality, your identity reside? It resides in your heart, in your mind. The heart is symbolic of the seat of life or strength, the NIV Study Bible says it's the center of one's being, including mind, will, and emotions. And yet, we need to have a pure heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so the new covenant 
which our former association perverted in terms of a doctrine. The new covenant is to be written on our hearts and on our minds. That's Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. I hope you pray that. Well, Father, please write your laws on my heart and on my mind. That's the new covenant. And it includes forgiveness, as you read in that section. So how is your heart? Is your heart pure? Is your mind and thoughts pure? Of course, we realize we're tempted all the time, and we need to, again, bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, which is an incredible challenge. And yet God doesn't tell us to do something we cannot do without his help and without his power. I earlier asked the question, how would you describe your character now? Are you predictable? In other words, does God know, for example, tomorrow morning what, you, what you're going to do when you get up? Does God know that you're going to sometime before you go to work or school or start your routine that you're going to be down on your knees praying? Or does he does he doesn't know? I don't know what Joe or or Sally are going to do tomorrow morning. They're they're unpredictable. There was a song <clears throat> some decades ago sung by Frank Sinatra, sung by others. Call me irresponsible. Call me unreliable. Throw in undependable too. Do my foolish alibis bore you? Well, I'm not too clever. I just adore you. Call me unpredictable. Tell me I'm impractical. Rainbows I'm inclined to pursue. Call me irresponsible. Yes, I'm unreliable. But it's undeniably true. I'm irresponsibly mad for you. So are you predictable? Are you reliable? Are you unreliable? Are you impractical? This song was just, just grand, uh, grandizing or supporting and glorifying irresponsibility and unpredictability. I would answer the song and say, no, I'm predictably and responsibly loving God with all my heart, mind, soul, and spirit. I wouldn't say, I'm irresponsibly mad for you. I would be responsibly loving you. So another key for growing in character is asking God to create in you his perfect character, that you can be reliable, that you can be dependable. Let's turn to Ephesians, the second chapter, Ephesians 2. Again, the key verse that uh, the Protestants use to uh, and misuse, I might say, to uh, say that we're we don't need we don't need uh, to keep the commandments and uh, we don't need to produce fruit and works Ephesians 2 and verse 8 now, what does God say here in Ephesians 2 and verse 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God now what the protestants say is that you're saved through your own faith which is a false doctrine. You are not saved through your own faith. Your own faith is required in order to accept the sacrifice of Christ at first. But that gets you reconciliation when you're baptized. You repent and you believe. Those are the two the requirements for receiving God's Holy Spirit. And it's your faith in accepting Christ's sacrifice. But it's not your faith that saves you ultimately. It is Christ's faith. 
Galatians 2.20, Galatians 2.16. It's the, the faith of Christ that saves you. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Both the grace and faith are gifts of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. All the works in the world will not save you. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we have to produce good works, but God is not going to give the gift of grace and faith to anyone who's a rebel and who says, I don't need to obey you. I don't need to follow your commandments. The Greek word for workmanship here is poema, which in the Greek can mean his work of art or his masterpiece, as uh, one of the commentators, John R.W. Stott, uh, records. Both words speak of creation. So we are God's work of art. We are God's masterpiece of creation. We had a sermon on that topic, uh, masterpiece of create, God's masterpiece of creation, uh, sermon number 129. But we thank God for those you know and many of you out here I know that have that beautiful character, that hidden man of the heart. It says in 1 Peter 3, 4, I knew uh, my wife and I visited a lady, oh, decades ago. She on the outside uh, was, would not be considered one of the most uh, beautiful women on earth. She had teeth missing. And when you looked at her, she didn't look all that beautiful from a physical point of view. She was a mother of 11 children. But she had beautiful character. And that beautiful character outshone the physical skin on her face and the missing teeth. She had that beautiful inward man or person of the heart, as it says in 1 Peter 3 and verse 4. So God wants all of us to have beautiful character. We reflect his holiness, his beauty, his character in our lives. Now, we need to be close to God, of course, and that is one of the keys of our, our growing, as we just saw. But we are to be transformed into the image of Christ. We are his work of art. We are his workmanship. We are his work of art. Let's turn to Romans, the eighth chapter, Romans eight. Romans eight, a key scripture on our transformation from carnality to spirituality. Romans eight, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So that's God's purpose in conforming us to the character, the nature, the thinking, the thought, the mind, and character of Christ. God is doing that as a process, as we ask him to create in us his perfect character. Turn over a couple pages to Romans, the 12th chapter where again he emphasizes that transformation. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You clean up your mind by reading God's word. Jesus said, now are you clean by the word that I've spoken unto you? That's in John, the 15th chapter. How are we transformed? We have to know who we are to fulfill our calling, to grow in godly character. Part of our growing in godly character is to know who we are. Turn back to James, the first chapter, James 1, and verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. So anything that is good, God has provided it. He's provided the air, the water, the minerals, the earth. So everything, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. His character is perfect love. Of his own will, he brought us forth. And the King James says, of his own will, begat he us with the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Of his own will. God looked down on this earth. We're coming up to 7 billion people around uh, the end of October for the total population of planet earth. And out of 7 billion people, who are you? God knows you. He knows every hair on your head. And He chose you, called you, and many of you have responded, repented, were baptized, received the Holy Spirit, and when you did, you were begotten by God. It was His will to put in you His Spirit and to beget you as His own son or daughter. We are the begotten children of God. We need to know who we are. Dr. Meredith gave a sermon, number 378, Who are you? Jesus always knew who he was. He remembered who he was, never forgot who he was. He knew he was the Son of God. We need to remember that we are the begotten children of God. And it was God's own will that he begat us with his word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 6 in verse 18. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18. I think most of our ladies know this one. God says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Who are you? You are the sons and daughters of the Almighty. Dr. Scott Winnell gave a sermon, Remember Who You Are, sermon number 514. So who are you? You're the sons and daughters of the Almighty. I've challenged uh, our audiences before. I'll challenge you today in terms of your identity to make a list from A to Z for biblical descriptors of who you are and what Christians are. For example, A... You can say, I'm an ambassador for Christ, which is 2 Corinthians 5.20. 
What about B? You are God's building. Of course, there are other descriptors starting with B. C, you're a Christian. D, you're disciples of Christ. And you go on with E to Z. And uh, so I've done this before, and I think about... Uh, Ten people after the sermon came up with lists, and I said, well, were you listening to the sermon or making a list? But it's all right if you make a list. Uh, X is a little uh, interesting. I have a whole list here from A to Z from uh, one young man who gave this to me. V, uh, victories, uh, victorious with Christ. Uh, he didn't really use biblical <laughs> biblical words uh, or descriptions out of the Bible. Unafraid, you unafraid of Satan. Why yearning for Christ's return? Anyway, uh, it's a, an excellent exercise to always remember who you are. Dr. Meredith's booklet on your ultimate destiny focuses on our identity as God's children. Quote, God the Father is not a nicey-nice wimp or a stern, unsmiling Puritan or an impractical philosopher. He and his firstborn son, like a loving family, are preparing other sons to join with them in ruling this world and later the entire universe. So go out under the stars some clear night. Try counting as many stars as you can see. And think of the billions of stars scattered across the vast universe which you cannot see, and then meditate on this awe-inspiring purpose for your life and thank God for it. Then get down on your knees and begin to zealously do your part to make it all possible. Let's turn to Second Corinthians, the third chapter. Again, a commentary on who we are and the process of growing in godly character. Second Corinthians 3 and verse 18. I've shared this with you before. But very important verse. Second Corinthians 3, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, he's talking about Moses who had to put a veil on his face coming down the mountain, and how the Israelites or the Jews were blinded spiritually. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Again, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind to be living sacrifices and to be transformed to the very image of Christ. The New International Version states it this way, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Are you being transformed with ever-increasing glory? I hope so. hope all of us are. We have to imitate the very character of Christ. But this is an encouraging scripture. It shows that we reflect the Lord's glory. We also radiate God's Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or self-control. Let's turn to Hebrews, the first chapter, and see that Christ himself has the character of God the Father with 
the only word actually in the Greek New Testament that uses the Greek word character. It's C-H-A-R-A-K-T-E-R. And this is in Hebrews, the first chapter, Hebrews 1. Starting with verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past, but to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, as Moffat translation uses the term universe, through whom also he has made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things, ta panta, which means the universe, by the word of his power, when he himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where it says that he is the express image. The term express image is translated from the Greek word character. The Greek word character from the lexicon denotes firstly, quote, a tool for graving from chirasso, to cut into, to engross. In English, character, characteristic. Then a stamp or impress, as on a coin or a seal, in which the case, the seal or die, which makes an impression, bears the image produced by it, and vice versa. All the features of the image correspond respectively with those of the instrument producing it. In the New Testament, it is used metaphorically, in Hebrews 1.3, of the Son of God, as the very image or the very impress of his substance. And that's from Vine's Expository Dictionary. So we are to have that kind of character. Christ has that very impress. He is God. And, of course, he overcame. And we are to overcome following his example. I quoted Colin, uh, Colin Powell before, the former Secretary of State, he said, quote, remember the word character comes from a Greek word, charassing, I'm pro- pronouncing closely, which means to engrave, to scratch, to make indelible upon a piece of metal or upon a child to put these traits there forever. So Christ has divine character, and we are to be conformed to his mind. Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Godly character is reflected in our attitudes. And I confess my attitude hasn't always been perfect and right. But Matthew, the fifth chapter, gives us the beatitudes or the beautiful attitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are beautiful attitudes. Mr. D. Barapartian wrote an article last year, January, February 2010, in the Living Church News, a question of attitude. He characterized bad attitudes and gave these particular descriptors. Finding fault continually. 
self-appointed spot remover. Oh, no, that's my expression, self-appointed spot remover. Uh, is continues being unwilling to forgive, feeling sorry for yourself, feeling holier than, our, than thou. Mr. Partian concludes, quote, start the change now. Do not put it off. Your attitude is the key to making you a Christian after God's own heart and will unlock before you the door to the kingdom of heaven. Let's turn to Philippians 2, Philippians, the second chapter. But what is your attitude? Do you have a positive attitude? Or are you complaining? Are you fulfilling the scriptures which help us to grow in godly character and overcoming negative attitudes? Philippians 2, verse 14. Do all things without complaining or and disputing. The King James has murmurings and complainings. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Can you do that for one day? Can you do it for two days? Can you do it for a full week to do all things without murmuring and complaining? As I've said before, describing a problem is not necessarily complaining and disputing if you're trying to analyze a problem in order to solve the problem. But you know how the Israelites complained. They didn't have a positive attitude. And in Dr. Meredith's sermon last week, Is God Real to You?, he read James 1, verses 2 through 4. To count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials. It's hard to count it joy, but the trying of your faith works patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be entire, lacking nothing. Do you serve with gladness of heart? I have to think about that. You know, as a boy, I used to complain, well, Mom, I don't want to do this. Oh, Richard, you know, smile when I tell you to take out the garbage. Yes, Mom, I'll smile. You know, do you serve with gladness of heart? That's what it says in Psalm 100. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. And he gives us a warning in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 47 of penalties that are coming on those. Why? Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things or the abundance of everything. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and need of everything and you will put a yoke of iron He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Why? Because you did not serve the eternal your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. And, of course, thanksgiving is such an important vital characteristic of God's nature. Like David said in Psalm 119, verse 62, At midnight I will rise and give thanks to you. Because of your righteous judgments. Have you ever gotten up at midnight and thanked God? But that's the attitude that we need to have. We need to have the fruits of the Spirit. And of course, Christ is the vine. We're the branches. Our Father in heaven is the vine dresser. But we will be tested. Our characters will be tested. Let's turn to First Peter, the first chapter. First Peter 1. And we've been exhorted and cautioned to grow in determination, commitment, and character so that we will be able to face even the trials that will come ahead. First Peter 1 and verse 7. 
that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, we are going to be tested. Christ learned through the things that, learned obedience by the things that he suffered in Hebrews 5, verse 8. Let's turn to uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 19. 1 Peter 4, just over a couple more pages. Again, one of those precious, valuable verses in the Bible. 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer, many of God's people are suffering. Some of you are. Some of your family and relatives and some of our our friends in the world. If anyone suffers, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. I remember Dr. C. Paul Meredith, an evangelist, back in the early 60s, and someone said, why, Dr. Meredith, is God letting this happen? It was kind of that kind of attitude, and Dr. Sebahal Meredith said, God knows what he's doing. He is a faithful creator. If we trust him to create in us his perfect character, even though we may go through trials and tests and suffering, the NRSV says, Therefore let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. So even if you're suffering, you still want to do good. And that's what I described last time when we see some of our brethren who are dying of cancer, and yet we see in their heart and in their character and their soul that beautiful attitude of loving and concern for you, the visitor, when he or she may be in the process of dying, continuing to do good, trusting that the faithful creator is going to create in you the masterpiece of his creation. Helen Keller, who was blind and deaf, said, wrote this, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Yes, we have to stand up for righteousness. We have to persevere through our trials. Mr. Rod McNair, in his article, A Challenge to the Youth, that was January, February 1999, LCN, said this, wrote this, Each generation, it seems, has had its unique challenges. In the Bible, Mordecai challenged Queen Esther to stand up for the right, even in face of personal danger, when he said, Who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther 4.14. God challenged Israel, and it still rings today, saying, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap. Ezekiel 22.30. As God has called us to stand in the gap and to stand up for our beliefs. The Apostle James, the Lord's brother, stood up for his beliefs. He was respected by the Jewish community in Jerusalem. He was a pastor of the headquarters church in Jerusalem. And yet the Jews wanted to get him to recant of his beliefs. 
He was obviously converted when you read Acts, the first chapter, where Mary and Jesus' brother and her children had seen the resurrected Jesus, even though they ridiculed him in John, the seventh chapter. Oh, well, if you're a Messiah, you go up to the feast. And, and Jesus said, you go up to the feast, and he went up later. But James was obviously converted later on, and the Jews took him up to the corner of the pinnacle of the temple. They wanted him to recant because so many people were following after this Messiah, the true Christ. And so they took him up to the corner of the temple, and they said, We entreat you, restrain the people, since it has gone astray under Jesus, holding him to be the Christ. We entreat you to persuade concerning Jesus all those who come to the day of the Passover, for we all listen to you, for we and all the people testify to you that you are just and that you respect not persons. And this, is, of course, is from a history by Hegesippus that it's recorded in Eusebius Ecclesiastical Commentary or Ecclesiastical History. Though James did not do that at all, he said, Why do you ask me concerning the Son of Man? He sits himself in heaven at the right hand of the great power and shall come in the clouds of heaven. So they knew he wasn't going to recant. They threw him off the temple, and uh, he didn't die. Uh, they Apparently someone came with a club to uh, kill him. But as recorded, they said, Let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him since he was not killed by the fall. But he turned and knelt down, saying, I beseech you, Lord God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. James would have seen his brother crucified and heard him say those words. Do you stand up for what you believe? Will you? Stephen certainly did. You know the martyr Stephen in Acts, the seventh chapter. He was another faithful minister of God. He was a servant, a disciple of John, the last apostle who wrote the book of Revelation, Polycarp. And Polycarp was a champion for the holy days, for the 14th Passover. And uh, he was martyred. He was taken to a a coliseum. And... uh, He was told by the centurion there, Swear by the genius of Caesar, repent. Say, away with the atheists. But Polycarp, with a stern countenance, looked on all the crowd of lawless heathen in the arena, and waving his hand at them, he groaned and looked up to to heaven. The proconsul pressed him and said, Take the oath and I'll let you go. Revile Christ. Polycarp said, quote, for eighty and six years have I been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. And how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You threaten me with fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. But why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. Oh, he was killed, martyred, but he took his stand. Will you be able to stand up for righteousness to the very end? God has called us to stand in the gap, and we're doing that, and you're helping us to do that. And you know that a major key to spiritual growth is having your heart in God's work. As Jesus said in John 4, verse 34, My food, 
My sustenance is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And we are all dedicated to that. We need that zeal and that commitment that we will stand up for righteousness regardless of our circumstances, regardless of persecution. Dr. Meredith in his LCN editorial, What Do You Stand For?, wrote this after quoting General MacArthur's speech. So we can, in that light, deeply relate to General MacArthur's words, duty, honor, country. As we grow older as a church and as individual members, let us never forget why we are here. Let us hold our heads high as we charge on day and night to do the work of God with zeal, with dedication, with courage, and with sacrifice. No military mission has ever been so vital. No warfare has ever was ever so important. And no reward was ever so magnificent as the one we will receive if we overcome ourselves, Satan, and Satan, and if we are zealous and faithful in proclaiming Christ's message to a world that has truly lost its way. As we have a duty to give, as Jesus said in Matthew 10:8, freely you have received, freely give. And we are giving with our whole heart the warning, the truth, the good news of the kingdom to the world. We need to pray as Jesus exhorted us, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We know that those who grow the most spiritually over the years are those who have their hearts in God's work. What is God's greatest creation? You are his work of art. You are God's masterpiece. God is a faithful creator, as we saw in 1 Peter 4 and verse 19. Trust God to create in you his holy, righteous, godly character. And pray as King David did, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, or a right spirit within me, as the King James says. Let's turn to Philippians, the first chapter, Philippians 1. In closing, Philippians, the first chapter, realize we are a work in progress. We need to accept our calling. We need to know who we are. We need to remember our mission. Philippians, the first chapter, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. As we follow the example of Christ, we know that we can be transformed, conformed, to his very nature and mind. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, God says in Zechariah 4 and verse 6. So, brethren, let's rejoice in our calling. Let's maintain a positive and tranquil mind. Let's rejoice and delight in our relationship with God the Father and with Christ, because we are God's children. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are God's Christ's disciples. We are his servants. Know who you are. 
God is love, and he's creating a family of love, a family of godly nature and wonderful variety of personalities and talents. When you die, you take only your character, your personality with you as you sleep in Jesus, and you look forward to the soon resurrection of the saints. We look forward to the time that we will be with Christ when he comes back, the King of Kings, with those who are called, chosen, and faithful, as it says in Revelation 17:14. So fulfill your calling, and as you do, you'll be growing in the spiritual beauty, the spiritual nature, and glorious godly character. We will be tried, tested, but we must be predictable, reliable, and continue to radiate the love and joy and peace of God. Remember, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's serve God with gladness and with cheerfulness of heart. Let's grow daily in godly character continuously and fulfill our heavenly calling.